Halito, and welcome to Native Chalk Talk, a podcast by Natives for all. Here, we're keeping our Native ancestors' stories and history alive, while also sharing with you our Native cultures, traditions, and more. I'm Rachel Youngman, a Choctaw originally from Anadarko, Oklahoma. I hope you'll enjoy this journey with me as we learn from our Native American guests. And stay tuned for the end of each episode, where we'll talk about some great ways to support Native causes and or Native-owned businesses. Let's get started. I am more than a maker. I'm more than an outdoorsman. More than a protector. Than a graduate. Than a princess. An athlete. A pastor. I'm more than a warrior. Chata Elifinachili. Chata Elifinachili. I am Choctaw proud. I am Choctaw proud. I am Choctaw proud. We are the Choctaw Nation, and together we're more. You're listening to part two of the series. Enjoy. What were the Cherokee like? Um, I feel like it's such a popular tribe that most people know the name. Okay. Well, as I said earlier, they originally lived in the towns, and each town had its own form of government, the town government, and their town chief. Mm-hmm. And then later, this evolved into the uh, councils. Whenever the and what really made you a Cherokee was that there are seven clans, Cherokee clans, and you get your clan from your mother. Okay. So it's the fact that you had a clan. So by having the clan, you were a member of the Cherokees nation. Mm, okay. And actually, <laughs> when some of the Cherokees started marrying white women, and actually a couple of our leaders in the 1820s some of the young men married that had gone to school in new england married a couple of new england girls oh and when they came back to the cherokee nation and they had children they actually had to see that a law was passed that children of white women by cherokee men were cherokee citizens would be considered cherokee citizens oh, okay hmm they did not have a clan because the clan is passed down through the mother. You right. Belong, you always belong to your mother's clan. Yeah. So it's kind of a, was it a matriarchal society in other ways too, or just when it came to the clans and naming? No, it was. Because yeah. the women normally had control of the house. Gotcha. And if they weren't happy with their husband, they could just set his stuff outside the house. I approve of this. <laughs> He comes home, his stuff is just sitting outside the house. Uh oh, what'd I do wrong? Right. <laughs> of course, he probably knew what he had done wrong. But probably. <laughs> I'm going to stay a few days late on this hunting trip. <laughs> so, and of course, we had our uh, dances, our stomp dances, and we never had the headdresses like the Plains Indians did. But we would wear perhaps an eagle feather or a hawk feather. Yeah. And were they a warring tribe? Yes. You have to think that maybe all tribes were warring at some point, right? And then, yeah. But were they, you know, sometimes when you think about the Comanche, you think of them as more on the um, 
offense sometimes. Uh, do you think the Cherokee were as well, or were they more on the defense? Probably a little of both. Okay. Because, uh, in the 1750s, they were fighting against the Creeks down in uh, Georgia. And we actually did not live in that part of Georgia at the time. Hmm. So, so they would encroach on the creek? We evidently won that battle. And uh, ah. before we later moved into that part of Georgia. Okay. Oh, it's a takeover. Yes. And I think that was quite common. Yeah. All the tribes. Yeah. Were they considered a very large tribe back then as well? Yes, we were still a large tribe. Mm -hmm. Of course, the Choctaws were not far in the number. Yeah. And I'm not sure the number of Choctaw citizens now, but I'm thinking it's probably an excess of 300,000. Yeah, very large. Yeah, because it's the Cherokees, the Navajo, and the Choctaw. I think the Choctaw come in third and the Cherokees and Navajo, they've gone back and forth in recent years. But the Cherokees have now won, correct? <laughs> right. So. Um, so a matriarchal society, um, they were, a, I guess you could call a warring tribe, just like many, many other tribes. Um, and what were their more primitive or, or back further in history, what were their dwellings like? They were made of uh, probably saplings would lay out in a rectangle. And then they would weave branches in between these saplings mm. and then put uh, mud over it. So yeah. That, uh, they were quite cozy and they were actually quite roomy. Hmm. Yeah. So Our they probably weren't, were they nomadic or no? No. Okay. No, they had their towns. Yeah, true. Okay. But the houses may not last over 10 to 20 years and they may move or build a new, a new house. Right. Sometimes they would burn the old one and build another house on top of it. I know that a lot of tribes adopted the Christianity as the colonizers started coming in and preaching and that kind of thing. Did the Cherokees also ad adopt Christianity along the way? Yes, many of them did. Mm -hmm. It was still a fairly small percentage, I think, during removal, but uh, well, actually not that small. There may have been half of the Cherokees. Yeah. It's, it's such a strange concept for all of us to grasp, isn't it? I mean, I consider myself Christian, but there's that dichotomy of there were people that came in and took over in the name of Christ. And some people adopted that religion and some did not. And, and some are very angry that some people still practice Christianity because of the terrible things that happened in the name of Jesus and all that. So it's kind of a controversial topic. Now, the first group that established a mission among the Cherokees were the Moravian missionaries out of uh, their southern province at that time in Salem, 
now Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Oh, really? Okay. And they established the mission in 1801. And they were German and spoke German. And many of their, there were prolific letter writers and journal writers. And all those early journals and letters mm. were almost all the earlier ones were all in the German script. And this German script was actually outlawed by Hitler in the 1930s so that uh, the average German person could not read it. But fortunately, enough people can read it. And the Cherokees, the Cherokee Nation, we reached an agreement with the Moravian Archives in 2008. And the, the, actually, the archives had suggested to us that they would publish, they would translate all the records from German into English and get them ready for publish for the Cherokee Nation to publish. And it's to be a five-year project. And they thought that there would be five or six volumes that would cover the time the Moravians were with the Cherokees from 1801 to the 1890s. Well, we just finished volume 10. It's now published. Really? And that only takes us to removal. Oh my goodness, it's amazing. The next volume has been approved and is about the index is being prepared now for us. And that's when they actually arrive in the Cherokee Nation West. And it has all of these records have lots of good information. Oh my goodness, I bet it does. I mean, anything from the learning about the way of living to I don't know, spats within among the people to anything. Yep. That that's incredible. They attended virtually all the Cherokee councils, treaty negotiations. Oh man, that's amazing. Uh of course a lot of it is the church records and so on, and which hymns yeah. and so on, which the Moravians find very interesting. From that standpoint, I bet we find it interesting from the other things they report. And all the people that came into the mission, that they would talk about them. Yeah. So that's so interesting. Unfortunately, for most of them, they actually identified who the person was that was there. That's fantastic. Good. The one interesting account that was in the records was we had treaties in 1817 and 1819. And the one, I think the 1817 treaty, the uh, assistant principal chief, Charles Hicks, who the principal chief was Pat Keller, who was quite elderly. And Charles Hicks was the de facto chief. Mm -hmm. uh, but he became a Moravian convert and joined the Moravian church. And he was telling the missionaries, which they reported, was that the Treaty of 1817, they had turned over the negotiations to a lot of the younger men in the council. And at that point, about three, four, and this was 18, as early as 1817, three quarters of those young people could speak English. And a quarter of them could not. And during the negotiations, the one who could speak English, they would revert to speaking English. 
and the ones oh, really of course who only under but they all understood Cherokee they could all speak Cherokee right yeah oh, so neat so, so they would have to keep saying no we don't know what you're talking about so talk Cherokee right <laughs> they finally had to issue if you spoke English you were fined so that was as early as 1817. Oh, that's so, amazing. So, and that is never recorded. We would not know that from any other source. That's really fascinating. And usually, you know, when we have those kinds of volumes of information, it's typically like French or maybe Irish, Scottish, that kind of thing. I didn't really even think much about that, you know, German influence. Do you think it affected the language at all? I I don't believe no that uh, the Cherokees did not pick up the German and then when they were teaching and the missionaries had to teach school and and the Cherokees were upset with them yeah they'd been there a year or two years and they had not started the school yet oh so, yeah but here it was people who were primarily German speakers teaching Cherokee children. He primarily only understood Cherokee. They were teaching them in English, a language that was that's nuts. Language for either one, right? But it worked. Yeah. Okay. We meet in the middle. <laughs> we speak English because right. I could swear that um, French, the French influence their language influence Choctaw language. I. Oh asked my Choctaw teacher one time about that. She said, absolutely not. But I'm like, it's so nasally sometimes. I don't understand how it could not have been influenced by, I was one semester away from having a French degree back in the day. And I was just like, I just, I can't believe that there was no influence on the Choctaw language from the French. Again, I may be totally wrong. She's the expert, not me, but. And at the mission there, they also had the, a Christmas tree. Georgia recognizes this as the first Christmas tree in Georgia. Was there at the really? Church. Ah, interesting. And usually each year at our Supreme Courthouse building in, that I'd mentioned earlier in downtown Tahlequah, they have an exhibit of the first Christmas tree in the Cherokee Nation. Oh, wow. That's so cool. I think I need to go down to Georgia. Yeah. See so what, there the, all these things you're talking about. Right, so, the, so all that's recorded in the Moravian records about going hmm. out and bring the greenery and also the tree, the Christmas tree. What other things do you find interesting, either about the Trail of Tears or the Cherokee or just anything along those topics? I think the interesting part is the ability, which I mentioned earlier, the Cherokees to adapt. because. After removal, they had to adapt to the new country, the new land, build, build their homes all over again. And then during the Civil War, the Cherokees were split much along the same lines that they had split over whether to remove or not. Mm -hmm. And each side swept back and forth across the Cherokee Nation. So practically the entire Cherokee Nation, almost all the houses were burned during the Civil War. Uh. There were only a handful that survived, but uh, but they recovered from that, rebuilt, and then allotment 
was devastating to their way of life mm. because they had uh, owned all the land in common and a person could, uh, if the land was not being used by anyone else, they could establish their own farm. Mm -hmm. So each Cherokee then could build their own farm. As a matter of fact, Henry Dawes, that was primarily, was Massachusetts Senator, and it was his act that uh, created the allotment. And he visited the Cherokee Nation in the 1880s. And he talked about that it, every Cherokee had their own home, that there was not a pauper among the nation, and that this wasn't right. They needed to allot the lands and all that because all the people were helping each other and they were, for the most part, sort of equal. So, we need to mess this up. This thing that's working just great. We need to mess it up. Okay. But but he made the statement: every Cherokee has their own farm and home, and there's not a pauper in the nation. Hmm. But he thought that was wrong. We'd love to see you all suffer just a little bit more. Yeah. Oh my God. Now, so once they came over on the Trail of Tears or during the removal. There was that Cherokee land strip, correct? Where, and it's like on the north part of the state, now yeah. the state. Which, which is actually the Cher property called the Cherokee Outlet. And that's the Cherokee Outlet, okay. Of Perry, Enid, et cetera. All those towns those are part of the state. And that, after removal, the Cherokees, for the most part, did not settle there. There was a handful of people that went out there, but uh, not many. For example, Blackwell, the person for whom Blackwell is named was a white man married to a Cherokee lady and actually established the town of Blackwell. But it was those lands were actually leased to Texas cattlemen for them to bring their cattle up for them to graze on the land to fatten them up before they took them on into Kansas to be shipped west. Okay. East. Yeah. Hmm. So it was very lucrative to the Cherokees to lease this land. Okay. Hmm. But the whites wanted that land to be settled by themselves. So Congress forbid the Cherokee government to lease the lands. They virtually made it uh, so that the lands were not worth anything, but said, you can't lease them to anyone or all, but we will buy them from you for a certain price. So we were- Ain't that nice of them. First into selling those lands. And so then the, there was a land run of 1893 that settled that. Yeah, because- um isn't it that with the Oklahoma land run, they basically had given just that part, the, the Cherokee outlet to, they opened that up for the settlers or were there other parts of, of the state that they allowed settlers in, to come into? And, the central part of the state where Oklahoma City is, 
they had after the Civil War, they did well, they didn't really negotiate, they pretty much dictated new treaties <laughs> for the tribes in 1866. And so they left the lands in central Oklahoma as unassigned lands. Uh, and so those okay. were actually put up and the land run in central Oklahoma was 1889. I think they include Guthrie and Oklahoma City. Mm -hmm. So that, that was all settled in. Yeah. That's just, it's such a crazy concept to me. It's like, here, natives, natives, we're going to give you this one little area. We're going to call it an Indian territory. Oh, wait, never mind. We're going to open it up. To me, it's just such a crazy thought too, that they put all of these tribes in this one area, which some of them had warred against each other at one point. So did the Cherokee have any struggles uh, kind of settling in with the, maybe the other natives that have been, or other tribes that were around them? Initially, there's some Cherokees that removed quite early. There were some Cherokees, a handful, that moved west of the Mississippi after the Revolutionary War hmm. because the majority of the Cherokees fought on the side of the British. The okay. So they wanted out of that. So they moved across the Mississippi into uh, Spanish territory. Ah. So, so they settled there and primarily in our Arkansas, west of present, along the St. Francis River, west of present Memphis. And then a small number in southeastern Missouri in the Boot Hill area there. So, but then they moved farther west around after the, actually after the New Madrid earthquake in 1811. They moved into western Arkansas, the present Russellville area. Okay. Turkeys actually lived there. And by the treaty I mentioned earlier in 1817, they actually got title to their land, those lands in Arkansas. Hmm. And while they were living there, the, the couple of thousand or so who were there, then they were fighting with the Osage. Okay. So, conflict with the Osage at that time. Well, and the Osage were known to be very big in stature, right? Yes. They were. were the Cherokee as well? I don't know. Okay. No, for the most part. <laughs> so we don't want to fight the Osage, but yeah. So, so there was primarily the Osages that they were fighting with. Course, okay. Yeah. Uh, east, they fought primarily with the Creek. Uh, okay. Never a dull moment. Right. Also, I think there were some fights with the Iroquois that would come down. Great. All of the things. <laughs> there were, was a lot more travel than we think there was. Really? Yeah. And long distance travel. Right. Because the Cherokee Nation would go up into the, well, into the Ohio area with the Shawnee and okay. up to New York with the Iroquois. Wow, that is a lot of travel. That's months of going back and forth. Why those women set those men's stuff outside. They were gone. <laughs> I haven't seen you in years and I need more babies. Right. <laughs> I assumed that they were hunters, 
buffalo and deer and all that, right? Yes, primarily deer. There weren't okay. a lot of buffalo in the southeast. There were oh, that makes sense. Right. There were smaller, what they call mountain buffalo. But those were wiped out fairly early. Oh, really? Mountain buffalo. Yes. I got to look that up while we're talking. Keep going. <laughs> oh. But with the, uh, when the English, the English came in to trade with the Cherokees, then there was a the deerskin trade. Mm -hmm. Some interesting dissertations on that. On right. Trade. And they actually have records in Charleston of the huge numbers of deer skins that were shipped out of there to England. Oh, really? Seven, mid 70s. Uh, yeah. An overabundance at some point or no? Well, it actually depleted the, the game closer. Cherokees. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. For another reason, they needed to take up farming. Although the the towns also had their farm. I mean, their town gardens and so forth. But the women, right. the women were the gardeners. Ah, right. Makes so, sense. So, so they had those. So they still garden and farm to a degree, but then they pretty much had, by the late 1700s and first of the 1800s, then that's when they switched to the farm plantation. And part of that was George Washington had his civilization project to the end. Okay. So then right. plows, hoes, uh, looms, spinning wheels, and all of the various Indian tribes and to the Cherokees. That makes sense. So, and it was interesting, the Cherokees had split earlier during the Revolutionary War with a large number called the Chickamauga Cherokees that actually separated themselves and went for, moved further south into the Chattanooga, North Georgia, North Alabama area. And they were the warriors that kept fighting the whites. So, but yet there had still been all these intermarriages. Right. There was these <laughs> George and Richard Fields who were only one-eighth Cherokee. And our principal chief, John Ross, the later was also only one-eighth Cherokee. Really? Okay. Richard it Fields, or excuse me, George Fields and another one. It was with a group of Cherokees around 1790. And they were considering attacking Nashville. So George Fields and another mixed blood Cherokee went into Nashville to scout it out because George Fields you know, had the white father and was dressed like the white men and he was blonde headed. Right. No one would know. <laughs> so I thought it's very interesting that in the 1790s, there was the warring party of Cherokees, who, the majority were full bloods, but, but certainly not all of them. That they had yeah. that could walk into Nashville to scout it out. <laughs> like, send that guy. He looks white. <laughs> so that's interesting. So, Chief John Ross was obviously a name that most of us have heard. What was he known for? Why was he so popular? 
I think he listened to the uh, full blood element more than some of the others. Mm. He was extremely popular with them. As a matter of fact, he was first elected chief in 1828 in our first chief election as such under our new constitution that had been, uh, that a constitutional convention in 1827. And then it was uh, implemented in 1828. So then he was elected then and he continued to be elected even after removal until his, so he served as principal chief for 38, more than 38 years. They really did like him. Yes. But it was the Chickamauga, they were the fighting group of the Cherokees. Okay. And the others. After the Civilization Project, they were the first ones to ask for the plows and hose, looms, and so forth. And they were the ones who became really wealthy. And this included the Major Ridge, John Ross's family, whose mother huh. was a McDonald, McDonald's and Ross. Right. Uh, all of the vans. These are the ones that were the last ones to war against the whites. And they were the first ones to acquire all of these. And the nation part of the, were actually complaining in the early 1800s. We're not getting this. All the influence and all of it going to the southern part of the nation for the Chickamaugas build. And they were the ones that became the wealthy planners. Isn't that interesting? Well, there's, there are the three federally recognized groups. Okay. Which is the Eastern Band, which uh, formed from different segments. Many of them were the ones that I'd mentioned earlier that were in lands that were ceded in 1817 and 1819. So they were mm -hmm. technically exempt from removal, even though initially the plans were to round them up too, mm. until the Zali incident that they were allowed to stay and then and there were other various groups there were some that returned to North Carolina after removal and some actually had been rounded up and escaped and went back into North Carolina and really area when they had been elected or when they had been given permission to stay so they went back mm. and settled with them was it hard for those who stayed behind or went back? I'm sure that it was, other than it was that part of North Carolina was rather isolated and they didn't okay. have demand for their land because it was a mountainous area. Okay. Yeah. Listen, and then, of course, there's the Cherokee Nation. And then in the the Indian Reorganization Act of 1930s. In 1940, the federal government recognized the United Band of Ketuva so that they could receive benefits for the tribal members since, since the tribal government had been abolished, uh, supposedly, at statehood in 1907. Okay. So that, so that group is still in existence, but they live within the Cherokee Nation jurisdictional area. Okay, makes sense. A lot more, I, I just learned a lot from that. I didn't realize there were so many out there. So, so there's the three official groups. Yeah. 
dozens of groups that claim to be Cherokees. Oh, really? That likely that, that have no Cherokee blood at all. Hmm. <laughs> What's their basis for that? Is it I heard that my grandparents were Cherokee or our grandmother said that we were Cherokee and so on. Oh, okay. So there's a huge number of these and I run into them all the time. So Bless their hearts. And and there could be some truth to some of it, you know, but yes. But many of them they're from areas, all their ancestors are like from New England or from Ohio and oh. So that they're right. not even close to where he's ever lived. Yeah, so it makes you go, well, hmm. But one thing I did want to mention is our, each year the Cherokee Nation has a bike ride to remember the Trail of Tears. It's called Remember the Removal Bike Ride. It's wonderful. And it was the first one was in... Uh, 1984, hmm. the, and part of that was to bring awareness to the trail whenever we were working to get the Trail of Tears National Historic Trail established by Congress. But there's a handful of riders, which one is still working and it's primarily the last couple of years has been in charge of the bike ride, Will Chavez. And he was on that first bike ride. Oh, that, nice. They sort of left in the east and they rode the bikes about where they thought the trail was and camped out the entire way. They had no money. So it was a right. re- really tough. 25 years later in 2009, then we did the first Remember the Removal bike ride. And so unfortunately, each year, and we've had the bike ride, except for 2020 with COVID. And fortunately, there was a break, because it's usually in June, end of May and first of June. Mm-hmm. Of, uh, so there was fortunately a break in 2021, so we were able to have the bike ride before there's a research of COVID. And then in 2022, at it again so we just missed one year when is that ride typically every year usually the very it's after most of the time it's been after memorial day okay. the last few years has been started the week or started the weekend of memorial day. okay and and how many miles does that typically entail about 950 miles right wow so how long they, does it take a little, about three weeks. That's crazy. That's and they great. Train. But I think the bike riders for next year have been selected and they've started their training already. And for the first two to three years, there's a Cherokee Nation. And then the Eastern Band joined with us two or three years later. Oh, that's great. A group that comes also. That's fantastic. It's got to be such a bonding experience. Do our non-natives invited to join as well? Is everyone welcome? No, it's limited to those bike riders that are chosen, primarily for ah. safety reasons. Yeah. We also have one of our marshals that also 
that's always with us and stays at behind the riders to keep track and watches for trucks or whatever. Yeah. So for listeners that wish to learn more, simply search online for the Remember the Removal Bike Ride. And in order to join, you would apply for the ride. So applicants are required to answer essay questions and provide references. So it's not just a free-for-all. It's a very guided and um, uh, well-guarded type of event. So also I wanted to mention while I can that the Trail of Tears Association, you can learn more about that as well, listeners. So just go to TOTA.com. TOTA stands for Trail of Tears Association, obviously. So I recently watched a speech by the current chief of the Cherokee Nation, Chief Hoskin, and he mentioned that despite being wronged, the Cherokee still believed in doing the right thing. I'm super impressed by that. And in addition, they believed that to rebuild and survive, they must continue their education. So quite impressive the way the Cherokees have that resilience. And like so many of our native tribes, the Cherokee are a strong and enduring people. So as you know, I hope to honor our ancestors by keeping their memories and stories alive. But so Jack, why don't you tell us about your own ancestors, your own family? Okay. I actually, well, I grew up in a primarily full blood community, which I mentioned earlier, Chewy, on my grandfather's Cherokee allotment, or at least mm-hmm. the first few years was spent there. Yeah. And uh it was interesting because at the time there was no electricity, of course, no running water. I think I was, I was either six or seven when electricity came to the community. Oh, what was that like? Totally different. It, it was almost as though you lived in pioneer days. It was yeah. different to that because there, yeah. there were very few cars. There's still a lot mm. of, a lot of wagons and horses that's amazing so it was a a different way of life so so i'm glad that i was able to experience that yeah the before and after do you remember the before and do you remember that transition to electricity yes that's amazing you've got to write a book have you written a book jack not about that as such but growing up my and of course it was primarily full-blood community Although my grandfather, unfortunately, had, while he was an interpreter for the Cherokee agent frequently, hmm. he bought into it because the agent, Cherokee, or the BIA agents, Bureau of Indian Affairs agents at the time, was trying to get people not to speak Cherokee. So while my grandfather was a fluent speaker, he convinced him that it wasn't a good idea to let his children, because they wouldn't be able to speak either language properly, which of uh, course that isn't true. And my mother, until she was five or six years old, only spoke Cherokee. And then she transitioned and then she didn't speak Cherokee as an adult. Although I have, I could always ask her what something was in Cherokee and she could always tell me. Yeah. So she wasn't speaking Cherokee to you when you were growing up. Unfortunately. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? One generation. 
that that's once you came along that was one generation of it it stopped there i mean obviously you can speak some cherokee but yeah but the majority of the people in the area where i grew up still spoke cherokee Hmm. and most of the events i went to as a child like the churches and all that were all the services were all in cherokee and i love that i love it and it wasn't even until recent years that the Baptist church there, the Cherokee church, we'd go in, the men would sit on the left side, the women would sit on the right side. And unfortunately, I've seen that change in the last 20 or 30 years. It's no longer the case. 20, 30 years ago isn't that long ago. You know, it's just crazy to think that there are still pockets of, especially Oklahoma, where that's still happening. And I, I love it. I want to just keep preserving it. Don't change a thing. No. So, but uh, I started my research because my grandfather was an orphan and he actually died of pneumonia in 37. He was, I think he was only around 49 or 50 at the time. Hmm. Yeah. So they knew very little about his family. They knew some of whom he was related to. They knew their, uh, we're called Aunt Sally, which was his mother's sister, but actually was his half sister. But okay. she was much younger and did not really remember her older sister because the older sister had died quite young in her early 20s. Mm-hmm. So, and we knew that. The gentleman who reared him, Noah Sand, was supposedly related somehow, but we did not know how. Although hmm. his, his name was Daniel Downing, but his father was James Downing, who actually attended, who wasn't a graduate, but he had attended our Cherokee Male Seminary. And he was a teacher oh. in some of our public schools. There were one at Rose, which is the Arcadia. Hmm. at the time yeah and he was teaching there when he met my great-grandmother so but his Cherokee name was Kanuna or Bullfrog so but he was dead also so when my grandfather was enrolled they asked what his father's name was and the person giving the information stated it was Kanuna so then they put down Bullfrog, and my grandfather was enrolled as Daniel B. Frog, with the B standing for bull. That's so, so cool. But his, but his father's English name was James Downing. Yeah, what in the world? <laughs> but he generally went by Dan Downing. Oh. Or almost always went by Dan Downing, other than yeah. by the Noah Sand who had some older sons who they always considered my grandfather, their brother. Yeah. Right. (laughs) But so sometimes he went by Dan Sands. Okay. So that makes it really hard for those of us researching out there. It's stories like these that make your head explode. Because when you do research, you have to research every single name and every combination possible, much less the spellings, because a lot of times they would spell incorrectly or they would just have a variation of the spelling. 
oh my gosh, how did you even figure all this out? Did you do you use ancestry.com? What do you typically oh, do? Long before ancestry.com. Yeah. That so, there was the guerrilla warfare of research. <laughs> the, the Oklahoma Historical Society. I when I moved to Oklahoma City after college and started going there to do research, there was this fantastic lady, Rilla Looney, who was over the Indian archives. Okay. And so this was the late 60s that I started going there. Yeah. And she had put this collection together with the aid of Grant Foreman in the 1930s. They had taken oh my goodness. government records that were stored in the basement of the old Carnegie Library in Tahlequah. And so Grant oh Freeman had gotten those. And he also was able to get uh, the tribal records from the other tribes too. So we have a large amount of Choctaw and Chickasaw records. We owe him a big thanks, don't we? So, but I went in and Rella, you got to know her quite well. <laughs> so she helped with some of the different records. So I was able to actually yeah. buy the. She must have been a wealth of information. I love people like that. And she sat down in the archives, but much of the time by herself, that no one was going down there. And she indexed all of these records. Oh my gosh. God bless her. Plus, at that time, the Chronicles of Oklahoma, she did their annual index for that each year, too. Oh, my gosh. Angie DeVoe would go there to do research. I met Angie DeVoe while she was... Really? Yes. No way. And, uh, but Rella made sure that I was introduced. So you were down there researching, and Angie DeVoe was as well? Yes. Oh, that's so cool. I love yes, that. Wondered with the historical society. So, um, you know, I've been there in the newer building, newer building, which is great. My sister did research kind of like you did when she was researching our great grandmother and things were not digitized. Um, now that things are more digitized, that's the only way I know to look anything up now, which is given me a crutch because I know there's more stuff out there. Can someone go to the the archives in Oklahoma City and still be able to pull out a book or or have a guide that helps them look up things that aren't digitized? Yes. And, and our staff there, and I say ours, it's someone still on the board. Yeah, no, you should tell us about that too. So so they're very helpful and they will help you look okay. up. Okay. Yeah. They're very knowledgeable of the records. And Many of them were microfilmed years ago, so they don't pull out the original records. But back then, after I got to know Arella, then I had full access to all <laughs> the records, all the older government, tribal government. Oh, records. that's amazing. And pull out what I wanted to uh, So unfortunately, it isn't that way anymore. I know, right? I miss but, the Rellas of the world. I know. Mm-hmm. She remained a good friend. I was at uh, a luncheon with the her replacement at the archives, Bill Welby, and a couple of her daughter-in-laws for her 99th birthday. Mm, that's amazing. 99? Right before her 100th birthday. 
she worked until I want to say in her 80s or so. She must have loved what she did. And think about like the con contribution she made from the 1930s. Thank you to all those people that work at places like the Histor Historical Society that have put their time into anything from volunteering to help people like myself who are always researching to people who are digitizing or whatever the case is. We really appreciate what y'all do. And that's one of the main things that I have been working on in recent years is getting records such as the Moravian records mm. publisher made available to the public. Yeah. And what's fantastic is, like I said, the majority of those records were written in the German script and had not been translated. Some had, but not many. So That's now so cool. Them all translated. Look at yeah. this legacy you're building. And then been working to try to get a lot of other records digitized. I've been working with the Tennessee State Library and Archives. I called the lady there for permission to use their, they have a large number of Cherokee records that were, okay. that's a long story and how it wound up there, but, but they were our, part of our Cherokee National Archives that were taken out of the nation during the Civil War then mm. later sold after statehood as private papers. Are you serious? Who bought those? Those were purchased uh, by a lady in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And unfortunately, huh. they got fragmented from her. With, but the vast majority, fortunately, are at Tennessee State Library and Archives. It was okay. the grandson of John Ross. They had all these records, and they said, oh, these are our, our family papers. Well, they weren't. They were the Cherokee tribal Oh, oh actually called in by one of the federal troops who took, escorted John Ross's family out of the Cherokee Nation during the Civil War. And they talk about the wagon loads of the Cherokee National Records. Oh, my gosh. But anyway, but of course, many, many of them survived, but the grandson sold a large number, half or more, to the lady in Chattanooga, a white lady, and his sisters sold their portion to Thomas Gilcrease, and those records. Oh, Gilcrease. So of the Gilcrease Museum, right? And yet there are little fragments here and there. Our Trilateers Association. In 1838, while the Cherokees were in the camps waiting to be removed in the fall when it cooled down and they had adequate water along the way, then they made out claims for property that they had lost. So those 1838 claims, the large number are at the Tennessee State Library and Archives but there were six different locations for those mm -hmm. that I had located. The Western History Collection, University of Oklahoma, they had a, a book of the claims. The Oklahoma Historical Society had a book of those claims. The University of Tennessee, their library and special collections 
they had a handful of them, which they had also purchased from the lady in Chattanooga because they had some of her records. And then the Tennessee State Library and Archives in Nashville had others. And it seems, seems like there may, it was, I can't remember, it seems like there was another place that had a handful of them. I hate but that we they're were, scattered out. We were able to get all of those. Oh. And have digital copies. And Gosh. they're now on our Trailer Tears website, and they're all indexed. What? There's That's a, amazing. A gentleman in Atlanta who's not Cherokee, but he's worked with Cherokee Records, and he's actually has indexed all of those records. But not by not just the claimant, but by the witnesses for the claim, the white people that had taken property or that were mentioned in the claims. Hmm. And also he put the place names so that you can. And now there's a group of students in Georgia. They received a hundred thousand dollar grant that they are transcribing all the records from that one area of Georgia from these claims. Really? To, oh my gosh. Actually sort of reconstruct what that area of Georgia was like. Oh, Jack, look at all you've done. I, I had no idea the breadth of all the things and this, you probably only scratched the surface. So, but, uh, what I would like to do is bring all those Cherokee national records that were scattered all over the place that we can get them back in digital form. Yes, exactly. Have to have the originals or whatever, but we can. Right. Digital, just okay. like our website, those 1838 claims that were made in the camps and they were pretty much made by the detachment. Hmm. So you work with that and figure out who came in what detachment. Yeah, exactly. Oh, we must have them. So That'd be so amazing. Uh, and so those are all online now for the index. You go to the our Trailer Tears Association website. That's fantastic. So now we're getting ready to work on the 1842 claims. But, but they are good at is that they state for the most part, not always, but almost always, they state, my name is such and such. I resided in such and such district in the East. I came West in so-and-so's detachment. And I li now live in such and such district. Uh, so they start out that way and, also, and then list the property. How helpful is that to, to people who are researching their ancestors? Because in the records at Gilcrease, there, are, there were 12 detachments later when the Cherokees took over their own removal. There were 12 detachments that came by land. And then John Ross brought one detachment of the ones who were elderly and were too sick for the most part. Mm. West, and he brought them by steamboat. And John Ross's wife, by the way, died on the way. Hmm. It's buried in Little Rock, Arkansas. Uh -huh. So, so even the chief lost his wife. 
in the room. Mm. But uh, so of those, of those 12 detachments, we don't have the names of the people except for four of them. So it's by using these other records that we can identify which detachment, because people always want to know, well, which detachment did my family come in? Right. So now then if we get all those 42 claims, then most of the people can identify. It's amazing. The, the the whole like gathering all of that information and it must have been so exciting and just finding where it all was like a big treasure hunt. Uh, and I think the National Archives has most of the attachment lists for the Choctaws. I need to take a note real quick on that because that is something uh, I've never uh, looked into. So will you meet me in DC and help me find uh, find those uh, detachment lists for my ancestors too, Jack? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much. I'll see you there. <laughs> so you and I geeked out a bit recently talking about our love of researching our ancestry. And so I'm sure we could go on and on today, but I'll digress. Thank you for sharing your expertise and about your ancestors. May they never be forgotten. Again, listeners, go research the Trail of Tears Association. Lots of good information there. Uh, And Jack, before we go, are there any words of wisdom you'd like to share with our listeners? No, other than uh, continue to work for your community and do what you can for your community or your tribal nation. Just get active in something you're interested in. Absolutely. And you are living proof of that. When I think of all the things you've done and the legacy you're leaving, it's pretty awesome. Thank you for all of us for, for putting all these pieces of those puzzles together. So Wado and God bless. You're welcome. Thank you, Rachel. Thanks for listening to Native Chalk Talk. Be sure to join our community on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Simply search for Native Chalk Talk. That's Native, C-H-O-C-T-A-L-K. And check us out at nativechalktalk.com. Stay tuned for the next episode. You're going to love it. Yakoki. Thank you, my friends.